I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Most of us have come across a form of bias when we interact with others. These biases can make their way to a machine learning system leading to unfair decisions. Rachel Thomas, co-founder of Fast AI and researcher in residence at the University of San Francisco, explains the origins and implications of bias in machine learning. We also talked about solutions to limit this bias. Rachel also explained the role of linear algebra in machine learning and how to teach it effectively for people working on ML applications. We talked about the fundamental concepts and how they are applied in machine learning. You can check out her course by going to fast.ai and you'll see an option there for the computational linear algebra course. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Rachel Thomas, co-founder of Fast AI and researcher in residence at the University of San Francisco Data Institute, is joining us today. Rachel, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. John Rupert Firth, an influential English linguist, said, you shall know a word by the company it keeps. What does this mean? Um, so this is about how um, one way that linguistic uh, linguists think about language and so finding the meaning of words. Um, and this is used in creating um, libraries like word to vac which is um, an open source library released by Google. Uh, but basically, it's kind of similar to Googling for a word, looking at all the sentences that contain that word, and seeing what other words show up again and again in the same sentences as that word. And those uh, kind of contextual words will give you a sense of the meaning of the word. And one example of this could be if I look up cake, then I can see food, dessert, sweet. Is this a good example? Exactly. Yes, exactly. And you might also see other words like birthday, oven, baking, sprinkles, frosting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you get a sense of the meaning of cake from all these associated words um, from the context. Part of artificial intelligence involves having machines understand text and voice. Does it help if the machine looks at the word as well as the words associated with this word? Sometimes there is structural or metadata that you might want to add about particular words, but you can get surprisingly far kind of using this statistical approach of just seeing, um, yeah, what other words co-occur in the same sentences as a given word. Earlier, you mentioned word to vec, and this is a way to represent these associations called word embeddings. What is in more detail a word embedding? So a word embedding is a vector, so just a list of numbers. So you might have, there's a hundred dimensional version of word to vec, and that means for each word, like cake, you would have a list of a hundred numbers that represent cake. And each of those numbers, does that number map to the other words that we talked about, like oven, baking? No, no. So how that shows up is that if you pictured that, and so... We, Since we can't picture 100 dimensions, mathematicians typically just picture two or three dimensions. And those similar words are going to show up in similar locations. 
So cake might be near oven and birthday and frosting. And then words, I don't know, like avalanche or jaguar that don't seem to have anything to do with cake are going to be in a totally different location on your plot. So the hundred numbers are kind of giving you this address and space where cake lives and cake's neighbors are going to be the words you expect to be its neighbors and things that have nothing to do with cake are going to be much further away. So when I decide to look up a word like cake, I would get back these neighbors of cake. Um, So that's one thing you could do is their nearest neighbor algorithms where you could look explicitly look up what are the words that are closest to cake. Uh, But you could also uh, just use this hundred word list for cake. And that could be input to um, if you were doing translation. Um, So if you're trying to translate from English to Spanish, you could have something where you're converting cake to, you know, this list of a hundred numbers, putting it through an algorithm and then getting out um, cake in another language. In what ways has bias been seen in systems like Word2Vec that associate words with each other? So it's really helpful that you kind of have this spatial representation of, so we talked about the cake is in a location and, you know, perhaps frosting and bake are close to it, which is really handy in that case. Uh, but you start arising with problems. Um, so something that I illustrated in um, the workshop that you were referring to is I looked at the distance between man and genius And they were much closer than the distance between woman and genius. Um, And so you can see a bias of where things are located and which words are close. Um, And this is is often described as you can think of word to back as giving you analogies. And so like if you're going from man to king, you're going to kind of move in the same distance and same direction as you would to go from woman and you end up at queen. And so that, that makes sense with our understanding of king and queen. But it's a problem when you also get analogies, and this has been found with word to back, where going from man to computer programmer is similar to going from woman to homemaker. Mm-hmm. And so here you've got this gendered bias. And do you know where the information comes from that is used to build a system like word to vec Yes, yeah. So it's a large corpus of text documents um, and online documents. Um, well, I think in word to vec they trained one version kind of using Google Books, you know, which is scanned copies of thousands and thousands of books, and another one on Google News. And so it's not surprising that these biases show up because these biases exist um, in our world and in the history of written language. And so that's what the computer has learned. And uh, an example of uh, another bias that you mentioned is when we think of insects and flowers that we associated with certain feelings. Yeah, so this is, um, and so I kind of, I was just giving these pairwise examples, which I think is illustrative, um, but you know, not, uh, not a scientifically sound, but there were researchers at... I think uh, Princeton and the University of Bath that looked at these groups of words. They called them baskets of words. And so they had a bunch of what they called pleasant words that were things like love, peace, joy, sunshine, rainbows. Um, And then they had a group of words that were insects. And so maggots, fleas, flies, bed bugs. (laughs) Then they also had, you know, flowers. And then they had negative words. And they found that the flowers in general were much closer to the positive words and the bugs were closer to the negative words. And that fits with our understanding of the world and of uh, 
kind of how we associate those things. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a good thing, I think, to be capturing because it has captured something about human language. Um, the problem is that they then looked at um, groups of African-American names compared to groups of traditionally European-American names. And they found that the African-American names were much closer to the negative words and the European-American names were closer to the um, positive words. And so that's a really um, concerning bias. Um, and again, I think it's not, not shocking that that would show up because um, this has been found in studies where you know, the same resume with an African-American name is less likely to receive an interview than that resume with a European-American name. Um, so there is this uh, kind of societal bias, but the, the word embedding has learned that. And like you said, it, it's a good thing that a system captures associations and embeddings, but now it's more, what is the implication of that association? It's not as harmful to associate an insect with something not as nice as a flower, but when we're dealing with real people and social interactions, the impact is much greater. Exactly, yes. And it's tough because it's kind of the flip side of this, uh, this positive mechanism of learning that cake is similar to baking or frosting. One thing that I also saw you doing in this workshop is some operations like adding and subtracting words from a word. One example you give is programmer minus she plus he. What is this doing? Yeah, so there I was trying to capture what, um, I guess, a more feminine version of programmer was. So uh, taking programmer, removing he, and adding she. And I wanted to compare that. So then I also did programmer minus she plus he to kind of have a more masculine version of programmer. And again, since these are just vectors of numbers, mathematically, you can add and subtract them. Um, but you could think of that as like the analogy I talked about earlier of saying man is to programmer as woman is to blank and kind of discovering what are you going to get. Was there anything surprising when you did this operations? Yeah, so when I, when I did this um, for the masculine version, so when I was removing she and adding he, the words close to programmer were much closer to jobs that we think of as programmer, and I'd have to look back at, um, at my notebook about this, but I think it was you know things like developer and engineer, whereas the list for kind of the feminine version of programmer included a number of jobs that didn't seem related, like stylist. So... Word to Vec, like we talked, is a very powerful tool that computes these word embeddings. But what does this translate to in terms of examples of applications that we interact with on a regular basis where we might encounter these biases? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, and so I should say Word to Vec is typically used as a building block for other applications. Um, but one, uh, one example is Google Translate. Um, so if you enter in Google Translate, um, if you're speaking a language that has a gender-neutral singular pronoun um, and say they are a doctor, they are a nurse, not signifying gender, um, for instance, Turkish lets you do this, Google Translate is going to translate that to he is a doctor, she is a nurse, yeah. because it has this bias that um, a doctor must be more likely to be a man and a nurse is more likely to be a woman. Yes. So is this subtle ways where we... Yes. 
Yeah, so it can show up in subtle ways, um, and it's a bit dangerous because this is a building block in many other applications. It's something that people may not kind of realize till later that they have the, have this bias. Something else, I'm not sure that this is happening yet, is um, using these word embeddings has been shown to improve the quality of search results. Mm-hmm. So if you were using this for search, you could run into issues, though, for people both searching for jobs or searching for people to hire if, you know, the search engine thinks that searching for, like, graduate student who studies neural networks, if that were more likely to return male names, um, that would create this bias potentially in hiring or in how people do job searches. How can we address or prevent these biases from happening? So there are two schools of thought on this. Um, there are some people that have come up with techniques to de-bias the vectors. And in particular, Rob Spear um, of ConceptNet has released a de-biased version of word embeddings. Um, and he looked both at gender and also at ethnicity. And he did some interesting studies of kind of looking at um, you know, looking at the words for different ethnicities and then comparing those to different adjectives and seeing how close or far away they are. And you find a lot of biases kind of based on these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And so he's released a debiased version of vectors. But some researchers, and I think there's a compelling argument for this too, say that you should, like humans, we perceive the world in a biased way. And that computers should still be able to kind of perceive the world as we do, but that you should remove bias at the time of action. And so that would be really careful. Like you could still have it in your embedding, but then when you go to make the translation, recognize, okay, we don't want to assume that men are doctors and women are nurses. Um, So that's another school of thought is kind of later in your algorithm when you're taking action to address it there. So in the Turkish example, they could have returned with he slash she is a doctor, maybe? Exactly, yes. So biases like these can also occur in images. What are examples of applications where people have seen this? One of the most famous ones is in 2015, um, Google Photos released something that ad- automatically categorizes your photos, you know, to say here are all your pictures of skyscrapers and here are all your pictures of flowers. And this labeled black people as gorillas. And so this is something we can guess that Google Photos was probably using a training set of pictures of white people and did not have much diversity in their pictures that they used to create this. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I heard in a conference that I attended, it was this woman, she said, if if I'm a minority here in the United States, I'm a minority in the data set. So yes. I would also say this example, I feel like, keeps showing up, even though I feel like there have been a lot of high-profile ex- uh, mistakes around it. And so in 2016, there was a group, beauty.ai, that said they were hosting you know, an AI beauty competition, and it found that white people, according to this algorithm, were more attractive than people of other races. In 2017, there was an app that would... Uh, had a filter that would make you look hot, (laughs) supposedly, and for that, and then skin lightening and narrowing people's noses to look more European. Um, And this was something that was, again, using deep learning. And to me, it's very surprising because this was, well, at least I got exposed to it in the news a lot. Maybe this shows. Yes. So why every single year it keeps happening if there is news coverage for this? So I don't really know. (laughs) 
Yeah, I had the same question. And I, I really do think this is something that won't be resolved until we have more diverse teams building this technology. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's really important to kind of have diverse people on your team building your technology. And these biases, as we are seeing, they can have more serious impacts in other applications in this same workshop that you gave on word embeddings and bias in machine learning, you mentioned that you were scared by that implication of biases occurring in systems used by the police. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yes, yes. Um, so in particular, Taser, uh, which makes the you know electronic stun guns, um, they also own 80% of the police body camera market in the United States. Um, so they kind of have all the film from body cameras and they acquired two AI companies and have been advertising to police departments that they're developing software around predictive policing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's terrifying uh, because I think given kind of already, <laughs> it's terrifying for many reasons, but particularly with the already existing racial bias in policing, combined with how poorly face recognition and image recognition has worked on people of color, I think there's a lot of potential for um, kind of developing biased and inaccurate algorithms. And another major concern is that we don't even have access to the data sets they use to train the systems. Exactly, yes. In the United States, there's kind of this weird... Um, when private corporations are building something, even when it's being used by the police, which are you know, a public entity, the private corporation is protecting their algorithms through NDAs and saying that they're trade secrets. And so um, right now we don't have a way to audit these or kind of oversee what's happening. Yes. And the way I also see this, why it can be scary is like you said, this company, they do a lot of the body cams for the police. So maybe they will have a system to detect, go approach this person instead because they look more suspicious according to their Mm, yeah. Yes, yes. And that's something also when you think about what kind of training data you would use to create such a system, I think there's so much potential for the training data to be very biased in terms of is that just going to be who pol police have labeled as suspicious in the past? Um, and if so, yeah, we know that people of color are overly um, kind of heavily policed compared to white people in the U.S. Your co-founder of Fast AI for those that are not familiar with what this is, what is FastAI? So FastAI, our goal is to make deep learning, which is multi-layer neural networks, um, easier to use. Um, and we're kind of iterating between education and research. So our goal is to, um, and we have, uh, we created a course, Practical Deep Learning for Coders, but to treat deep uh, teach deep learning in a way that is as accessible as possible and helps people from a variety of backgrounds get up to speed and be able to use these algorithms. And then we want to, for the next time we teach it, try to make it even easier by having developed tools and libraries that will further streamline the process. I did a show on intro to machine learning with Katie Malone that did this course on Udacity. Oh, yeah. okay. And I want to ask you, in what ways is machine learning different than deep learning or is it different? So I see deep learning as a subset of machine learning and that it's looking at this one specific class of algorithms. Um, so machine learning, I would consider kind of any algorithm that you're 
using training data to learn the parameters. And some, some examples of this would be random forest or support vector machines. Um, deep learning specifically is multi-layered neural networks. And yeah, it's a subset of machine learning. What are the examples of applications that are have been shown to be better suited with the deep learning approach? So images have definitely been a huge one, and a lot of the kind of advances in deep learning that are happening were first made with images. So image classification, so taking an image and identifying what it's a picture of. This is being used in medicine to identify tumors on a CT scan and tell whether or not they're cancerous. And then language is another huge area and using deep learning for translation. Mm -hmm. um, I want to highlight that deep learning can also be used on what I would call structured data sets. So where you have either a time series and maybe some different categorical variables or different measurements, something that could fit in a table um, or a SQL database. Um, deep learning works on that type of data as well, although that's an area that's kind of gotten less attention. You also did a PhD in mathematics. From your experience, what are the areas of mathematics that are present in deep learning? So deep learning, really, it's primarily using linear algebra and calculus um, because it alternates between basically just having a linear function, like a convolution or a matrix multiplication, and then a differentiable function applied. You're um, just kind of chaining these different functions together and learning the parameters for them. Um, however, I want to highlight that like with our class, Practical Deep Learning for Coders, we, we said the only prerequisite was one year of coding experience in high school math, because we were really trying to make the field more accessible. And a lot of materials for deep learning involve graduate level math, uh, but that's not actually needed to be a practitioner and to be using the algorithms. But they also involved some of high school math, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah, it did involve um, high school math. And there are some math concepts that we have to introduce yeah, as part of the course. And that's actually one of the things that I think about because right now in the U.S., computer science is not mandatory. So what I think is looking back in high school, I was learning about matrices. I was doing this computation. Well, not computations because I was doing it in pen and pencil and paper. But I think that could be a way to you know, embed some computer science education because math is a requirement. So if you could just see, hey, these matrix operations that you're doing, they can enable you to program a computer to recognize images and things like that. Yes, totally. Yeah, and I, um, I taught a course this summer on computational linear algebra, mm -hmm. which is how do you kind of program computers to do matrix operations quickly and accurately. And I think it's a really fun area and it's surprisingly different from the linear algebra that you do with paper and pencil because you want to do things differently when you're using a computer um, and there are a lot of different issues that arise. And this course that you just mentioned about linear algebra, is it associated with the AI side of things? So it's, I think it's a foundational piece that gets used a lot. I wouldn't explicitly call it AI, um, although we did release it for free online through Fast AI, um, and you can find kind of a blog post about it, and it's like an online textbook on GitHub. Um, I tried to keep it all 
um, very application centered and kind of always starting with an application like, you know, here we have a surveillance video and we want to be able to identify what's the foreground and what's the background. Or here we have the measurements from a CT scan. We want to be able to reassemble the picture. Um, I think that those sorts of matrix operations are very useful. Um, something that's significant about deep learning that you don't necessarily see in other areas of machine learning are because it's got all these matrix operations, um, GPUs end up being really important and useful, which are graphical processing units. And for a long time, they were primarily used in video games, um, kind of as the graphics card. Um, but video games require a lot of matrix computations, so they do those very efficiently. So that's really useful for deep learning, and it's useful for large-scale linear algebra. Why do you think matrices and matrix math are a building block in machine learning and data science? So I think pretty much everything can be represented as a matrix. So certainly anything that you have in an Excel table or a SQL table, um, you can think of as a matrix. And photos, um, any image data that's represented as a matrix where each pixel is either one or three dimensions if you're using RGB. Um, and then language, kind of we were talking about word embeddings earlier, and word embeddings really are about turning sentences into matrices, because you have one vector for each word, you put those all together, and you've got a matrix for your sentence. Mm -hmm. And so computers, kind of whenever they're acting on images or on language or on more traditional tabular data, they're acting on matrices. And the focus of this new course that you released on linear algebra is this idea of exploring how do we do matrix computations with acceptable speed and accuracy? When do we start thinking about acceptable speed? So I guess that varies some depending on the application of... Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever, kind of something's going slower than you would like. I mean, something about matrices is that you're already typically dealing with, you know, like N squared amount of data. And so you can get into these really algorithms with high computational complexity very quickly. So even matrix multiplication, kind of the standard way of doing that, you know, that's N cubed computational complexity, which is already kind of bad if you have anything that's too big. In the book of this course, one thing that I really liked is that you say, Math is continuous and infinite, but computers are discrete and finite. Yes. What are the implications of this? Yeah, so I mean, the impl one implication is that just even for a given number, you know, in math, you're kind of always thinking of the exact number, whereas computers typically can't represent a number exactly. Um, and you get even, there are actually gaps between numbers and the way floating point arithmetic is stored. Um, because you just have so many bits that you're using. And there's, and I talk about in the course, kind of how, how they're stored by computers. So you inherently are introducing often lots of tiny rounding errors, which are, you know, fine in isolation. But over the course of an algorithm, particularly something that's iterating a lot, those can add up. When I first took numerical linear algebra, it was really exciting for me because it was just such a different way of thinking about math than I was used to. Um, I never thought about it from the perspective of a computer of like, okay, you can't store a, a number with perfect accuracy. And like you said, this errors that might seem small at first, they can add up over time. What is one consequence of this? 
Um, so this, this would be uh, kind of getting the wrong number. And I, I give it an example that's kind of fun that you can uh, work out and see how you get uh, get this wrong number from what you're able to calculate by hand. A few high-profile examples is the European Space Agency launched a um, rocket that exploded in the 90s. Intel, that was a very, very expensive mistake. Intel issued, in the, again, in the 90s, uh, a chip that was incorrect in some floating point calculations, and that was an incredibly expensive recall for them. Um, so these can have yeah, a real-world impact. As we're developing these systems, should we keep in mind this since the very beginning or when we're about to deploy the real-world application? Um, yeah, I think it's good to keep in mind from the beginning to be aware of what the issues are, because in some cases that's going to change how you want to do things. And there, there are a lot of other issues that arise. Something else I talk about in the course is, for instance, how to store sparse matrices. Um, but yeah, when you're just thinking about having limited memory and limited size of memory, it changes how you store data, sometimes what algorithms you want to use. Um, and this is... A related, related thing um, is that when you have larger data sets, it often doesn't make sense to even see perfect accuracy as a goal, particularly if you have, you know, if you know that there's some error in how your data was collected, it doesn't make sense extra time and resources calculating this very high accuracy when your data wasn't even measured with that accuracy. And so I think um, for, for most people working with larger data sets, uh, there are a lot of areas where don't need to be as accurate or even can't be as accurate. And so kind of being aware of how accurate is it necessary to be or makes sense. Or what exactly does the application involve? For example, if you're dealing with a machine for cancer treatments, you want to be more accurate on dosage and things like that. Yes. Yeah. That's an example. Whereas, yeah, if you're making a prediction of where someone wants to eat lunch, that might not be as important to be as perfectly accurate. Yes. And what I like about this course is that it's very different from when I took math in high school and in college. It's more motivated by seeing the big picture first. Like you mentioned earlier, you get to work on CT scan data. I also saw you can do background removing from images. Yes. Topic modeling, which is where you find the category of different documents. How do you compare this approach with what you learned through your PhD in in mathematics? Yeah, this is this is very different. Um, I think in mathematics in particular, so there's a Harvard professor who I really like. He's an education professor, and he talks about this idea of the whole game. Um, and <laughs> math is usually taught the opposite way, where you typically learn each disconnected component you're going to need. And then like a few years later, you'll be able to build something interesting, but you're not allowed to do anything until you know every underlying detail that's involved. And this is, I think, hard for a lot of students because they don't have the motivation of where are we going with this? And you don't have the big picture of like, how is this all going to fit together? And I think a lot of my math education followed that pattern. Um, but the idea with the whole game that David Perkins talks about is with little kids, you don't make them memorize all the formal rules of baseball before you let them play yeah. 
play a game. You know, like they have a general sense of what baseball should be like, but it's okay if they're not doing a full nine innings or if they don't have a full team. Um, they just can play the game and have fun. And then as they get older, they learn more rules. And so uh, what Jeremy and I have been trying to do with our fast AI classes is apply that to math and to coding and to let people, we want people to be able to do interesting stuff even before they know all the underlying details, because I think that provides so much motivation of why you should learn those details. Yes. And especially this opens the doors to people that come from different backgrounds, like humanities. Yes. Where they didn't take these math courses in college, so... They're less overwhelmed, I guess, if they see the big picture of how they can. Right. Yeah, I think it's, I talked to some people that feel like they have to kind of go through these whole advanced math textbooks before they can start doing machine learning or start doing deep learning. Um, and I think that that's a barrier that keeps a lot of people out. And I want them to kind of be able to get in there and start having fun as quickly as possible and then learn the math as it's needed. What is the technology stack that you're using in this course to build solutions? Uh, so I use Python, and Python is the main language used for deep learning in the computational linear algebra class. So I used uh, I teach out of Jupyter Notebooks, which I just love. Um, Jupyter Notebooks are a way to they give you a, an environment in your browser where you can run code, but you can also include text and plots and diagrams and videos. Um, and they're used a lot in the data science community. Um, because they are a good way to kind of share your analyses. They're great for creating textbooks. Um, so I'm using Jupyter Notebooks with Python. And then I introduced a few different libraries that are definitely not standard things you would see in a linear algebra class. Um, but those include Numba, which is a Python um, library that compiles to C for um, code that runs much faster. I use PyTorch, which is Facebook's deep learning framework, but it's also a way to, it's an alternative to NumPy that runs on the GPU. So it's great for matrix math. Mm -hmm. and, and NumPy is kind of Python's uh, classic numerical, um, numerical computation library. Mm -hmm. Do the students need special equipment to take this course? No, no. Um, you can use PyTorch even if you don't have a GPU. You're not going to get the same type of speed up. Okay. If you were interested in using a GPU in the practical deep learning for coders class, we have a video that shows you how to set one up on AWS. Um, and that does cost um, 90 cents per hour that you have the machine running. Um, but you can always, yeah, use AWS for a virtual machine if you wanted to try out what it's like to use a GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyone can do most of the course, and even you can run the PyTorch code. It's just going to be slower without it, um, and that just shows up in one or two lessons. Yes, and it's not like if you're using a GPU, you're getting more significant skills because this system, from what I understand, you can just tell it, okay, point to a GPU or a CPU. Exactly, right? yes. Yeah, it's, it's literally, there's like a dot .cuda method that you add on to stuff when you want to use the GPU in PyTorch and you delete it if you're not using it. So yeah, it's not that different at all programmatically. Yes. Well, I'll include the information on this course in the show notes. I'll include links and everything. And I want to thank you, Rachel, for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you.